Sketches from Scripture presents Light in the Darkness, a teaching series from the stories of Genesis. Light in the Darkness is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be exploring the narrative structure and style of the book of Genesis as context for better understanding of Scripture. This will help us trust more in these scriptures by demystifying them, taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale, and putting them on the ground where they belong. Real words written by real people about real events in real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast scatters your darkness and makes the great light abundant in your life. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others. Quick review. We're not going to review all of Genesis like we normally do, but I want to go over where we were um, at the end of the night the other the, the other night. So we talked about three act structure last night, and we talked about how in America, in the West, stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Sort of a setup, and a confrontation, and then a resolution. This so we have this beginning, middle, end. And in the East and in the ancient East, things were more beginning, middle, beginning. And so we talked several lessons ago about chiastic structure, how it kind of comes down in this X shape, kind of funnels down to this changing event, and then takes place in reverse order. And so what we end up with is beginning, middle, beginning. And so as we were looking at Genesis, we found ourselves coming into that that act three, coming into that third act in the chapters that we were looking at last night. And we sort of see this turning point in the story of Judah. We just looked at the story of Judah and Tamar, and it's kind of sandwiched right in the story of Joseph. We normally think of the story of Joseph as the important story. But then there's this weird story about Judah and Tamar and whatever's going on there. And we showed how this chapter with chapter 38 with Judah and Tamar, there's a lot of things about it that relate to the chapter before it, where Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, and some relations to the chapter after it, where Joseph is um, propositioned and chased off by uh, Potiphar's wife, and she's left holding his garment. And so we talked about how you know there's these garments used in deception, that there is a goat uh, that is used in uh, two of the stories as part of a deception that there is some sexual uh, shenanigans going on in uh, a couple of the stories. And so there's sort of these links from one to the other, and we're sort of comparing and contrasting some things. And what is the storyteller of Genesis trying to say to us about this? What's happening here? So let's, we got a lot of text to get through, so let's jump right in to uh, Genesis chapter 40. I've not really had a great chance to uh, go over all this, so um, pardon me as we, as we sort of go through it together. So chapter 39 was Potiphar's wife. Chapter 40, as we come back into it, is Joseph has been imprisoned. And now what we have is he's in there with the uh, the baker and the cupbearer. They have dreams. He and uh, Joseph interprets those dreams. One of them, he's going to die. Too bad. The other guy, he's going to have his uh, place uh, given back to him as the cupbearer. And, and Joseph tells him, remember me when you have your place restored. And the sure enough, it turns out just as Joseph interpreted the dreams, Joseph does not interpret the dreams himself, but he gives the solution to God. In fact, he says, 
somewhere around verse 8 of chapter 40. Uh, and Joseph said to them, are not solutions from God? Pray, recount them to me. And so what he's saying is this is not my power, but they come from God. But, but good news for you. I know God. And so I can help you. And so once again, we see Joseph playing the role of a prophet. Uh, maybe not capital P prophet, but he is certainly telling things about the future through the power of God. He's coming to these men and he's interceding on their behalf and uh, in between God and, and, and them and giving them some, some wisdom. So he tells the cupbearer, you know, when you're restored to your position, remember me. And it says that the cupbearer forgot about Joseph. So then in chapter 41, Pharaoh has a dream. And nobody can figure out what it means. But then the cupbearer remembers Joseph. Joseph comes in, says the same thing to Pharaoh and um, says, hey, you know, God's the one that knows how to do these things. In fact, uh, somewhere around verse 17 of chapter 41, um, it says, and Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, not I, uh, God will answer for Pharaoh's well-being. And so Pharaoh speaks to Joseph. Joseph gives an interpretation of the dream and it is the story of the seven years of feast and the seven years of famine. And so Joseph is saying, hey, God's, God's warning you, Pharaoh, that there's going to be these seven years of plenty, but then it's going to be followed by these seven years of famine. You should get somebody to really save up during the seven years of plenty so that during the seven years of famine, uh, people have enough food. And so guess who is put in charge of that? Uh, Joseph is put in charge of that and immediately begins to put uh, the the work he did as a slave to use in harvesting grain. And uh, there's a lot of things that are going on here. Basically, the politics sort of uh, of what happened was um, they store all this grain, and as people are coming for grain, uh, they're swapping out and bartering. Well, then people don't have anything to barter with. So they start bartering for the land. And it was in this way that Egypt really became a giant nation. It was no longer just sort of these nation cities, but but Pharaoh took control over all the land and really the entire nation began to sort of own the land in exchange for giving people food. It was really sort of an unprecedented uh, thing that, uh, that happened there. So <clears throat> um, as we come to chapter 42, we see that Jacob is running low on food, but there's provisions in Egypt. So he sends the brothers, but he won't let them take Benjamin because Benjamin is his only son left uh, by Rachel. And he does not want to lose Benjamin. He's already lost one son and he does not want to lose Benjamin. So um, let's pick up here in 42 and read just a little bit of this. And we'll start around verse five. And the sons of Israel came to buy provisions among those who came, for there was famine in the land of Canaan. As for Joseph, he was the region of the land. He was the provider to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him, their faces to the ground. Of course, they don't know who he is, right? And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. So you got to remember, Joseph's been uh, living basically as, as an Egyptian for the last span of time. He's probably, his skin's probably changed color. He's probably dressed differently. And uh, certainly he's grown up. He's no longer the 17-year-old boy that he was when he went missing. And so now he's an adult man and there'd be no reason that they would recognize him. But most of his brothers being older than him, they've not aged as much. So he recognizes them right away. Uh, and he played the stranger to them and spoke harshly to them and said to them, where have you come from? Now, I should say when it says he played the stranger to them, we see that word play. And I think 
because we know how the story ends up turning out, and because we hear this at Vacation Bible School and probably first read the story in our children's Bible with cartoon characters or whatever, I think we get the sense that Joseph is just playing around with his brothers. Let's think about the scenario for a little bit. Let's imagine you're 17, your siblings throw you in a pit saying they're going to kill you. Another sibling says, oh, let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. You're sold into slavery. You never see your family ever again. You're thrown into prison for something you didn't do, where you spend years in prison. And finally, by the grace of God, you come out, interpret Pharaoh's dream, and now you find yourself in a position of power. And who should come groveling to you but your siblings that wanted to kill you and sold you into slavery? Would you be in a playful mood? Would you be wanting to joke around with these guys? I don't know about you. I'm a pretty weak person. I would be very angry, and especially at this time in this culture. Uh, you know, this is, this is the kind of thing brothers killed brothers for in this culture. I don't think Joseph was playing around with them. When it says he played the stranger, it's like he acted the stranger. He pretended as if he were a stranger. But I don't think there's any playfulness happening here. I don't think the text is trying to tell you that. So, um, this is again, why it's important to read multiple versions, get a sense of what's going on, and think through the entire story in context so you can really know well, what is it that's happening in the scene so we don't come into it with some wrong ideas. Because it says right after that, he speaks harshly to them, right? Speaks harshly to them and said, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams he had dreamed about them. And he said to them, you are spies to see the land's nakedness you have come. And they said to him, no, my Lord, for your servants, we uh, have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. We are honest. Your servants would never be spies. And he said to them, no, for the land's nakedness you have come to see. And they said, 12 brothers your servants are, <laughs> which, of course, the Egyptian man standing before them can see that there's only 10. Twelve brothers your servants are. We are the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And look, the youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. So he's not dead. He's just no more. Right? He's not around. And Joseph said to them, that's just what I told you. You are spies. In this you shall be tested by Pharaoh. You shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you to bring your brother. And as for the rest of you, you will be detained. And your words will be tested as to whether the truth is with you. And if not, by Pharaoh, you must be spies. And he put them under guard for three days. And Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live. For I fear God. If you are honest, let one of your brothers be detained in this very guardhouse. And the rest of you go forth and bring back provisions to stave off the famine in your homes. So at first he says, everybody stays here and you send one. Now he's saying, okay, look, you don't want to do that. That's fine. But leave one person here and the rest of you go. Um, uh, and your youngest brother, you shall bring to me that your words may be confirmed and you need not die. Again, even though he's pretending to be a stranger to them, I don't know that this is an idle threat. If I were Joseph, I would not be happy with these guys. And so they did. And they said each to his brother. So now, remember, this is very important. This is some information that we're going to learn in a little bit. But remember, Joseph is Egyptian. He's pretending to be a stranger. So he's going to speak in the Egyptian language. And the family of Jacob, well, they're Jews. And so they're speaking in some ancient version of Hebrew. So as they speak to each other in Hebrew, they would not know that the Egyptian would be able to understand them. So all this conversation that's about to happen amongst the brothers, they're going to assume that the Egyptian man listening to them, who happens to be Joseph, 
is not going to be able to under, understand it. It says that later, but I'm saying that now so that you know that as we as we come into what they're saying here. And they said each to his brother, Alas, we are guilty for our brother, whose mortal distress we saw when he pleaded with us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has overtaken us. Then Reuben spoke out to them in these words. Once again, Reuben is set apart from the rest of the brothers. Remember, Reuben is the oldest and was not there when the decision was made to uh, well, to kill him or to sell him. Reuben was against killing him. And he said, let's put him in a pit because Reuben was going to come back and get him later. And before he had a chance to do that, the other brothers sold him. Reuben was not involved in any of that. And we have no textual ind indication that Reuben was ever told about it. So for all we know, Reuben may even think that he's dead. At very least, he doesn't know what's happened to him. So remember that when you see this. Then Reuben spoke out to them in these words, didn't I say to you, do not sin against the boy and you would not listen. And now look, his blood is requited. What he is saying is, uh, it's, it's sort of a, an idea of karma or something like that. It's like, oh, because of this sin that we did way back then, because of what you did, now we're all having to pay the price now. We're not going to get food. We're all going to be held in jail. And it's because of what you guys did. That's what Reuben is saying. And they did not know what Joseph understood. They, I'm sorry. And they did not know that Joseph understood for there was an interpreter between them. So here's what's important. Joseph understands all their squabbling amongst each other. This would be the first time that he probably understands Reuben had nothing to do with this. So can you imagine hating your oldest brother for uh, whatever the math is? I think he's around 40 here. He was 17 when he was gone. Was that 23 years? Hating your brother all this time only to find out he actually had never had anything to do with it. This might be the first time that he's finding that out. And here's another indication that this might be the first time he's finding that out. Look what happens immediately next. There was an interpreter between them and he turned away from them and wept. So can you imagine holding this hatred in your heart, holding this anger in your heart, and then finding out you were all wrong about it? You were all wrong. Wouldn't you turn away and weep at your at yourself, at, at your brothers, at, at the whole circumstance? And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them. Well, why would he take Simeon? Well, Reuben was the oldest. Who's the second oldest? Well, it's Simeon. Okay, Reuben didn't have anything to do with it, so we'll take Simeon. I, I That doesn't say that's his reasoning, but uh, given the culture, that would... That would be a good understanding. So he took Simeon from them and placed him in fetters before their eyes. Of course, also Simeon and Levi were the ones that caused such trouble for the family after uh, their sister was sexually assaulted. So I'm sure Joseph would just sort of reason. Yeah, Simeon. Okay. Yeah. Simeon's the troublemaker. That makes sense. Joseph gave orders to fill their baggage with grain to put back the silver in each one's pack and give them supplies for the way. So he did for them. So he gives them their money back. So this is another indication that he loves them. They're his brothers. And that may be true. It may also be a ploy to get them to, to get them to come back, to make sure they have money to come back. Maybe he's sending money home to his father. Again, all we can really do is speculate about a lot of these motivations. But I just want you to see that there's other explanations here that fit some of the details a little better than the Vacation Bible School story that we maybe we grew up with. So we're going to skip over all this, but basically they go back, they find all the money is still there. Uh, Jacob is upset because now he's lost Simeon too, and they're going to keep Simeon unless they go back. And so uh, they, they, they go back, they get Jacob, and um, let me find, skipping through all my, my footnotes here. They finally have eaten up all that food, and finally Jacob says, you got to go back. And look what happens here in chapter, we're in chapter 43 now. Around verse three, their father said to them, go back, buy us some food. And Judah said to him, remember, we've already established Judah is the first person in the book of Genesis who has sinned 
taken responsibility for it, and changed his behavior. He's the first and only person in the book of Genesis to have done so, so far. Already, he has been established as our main character. He's the main character of Genesis. And so here he is speaking out. Let's see what he has to say. And Judah said to him, saying, The man firmly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you're going to send our brother with us, we may go down and buy you food. But if you are not going to send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Excuse me. And um, and and Israel said, remember, it goes back and forth between calling him Jacob and Israel. When he's sort of throwing a tantrum and being untrustworthy, he's Jacob. When he's the father of the family, he's Israel. Why? Why did you tell him all these things? Okay, before we get to Judah's response, I do want to back up and look at the end of 42, just real quick. Because uh, before they decide to just eat all the food and, and, and tough it out, Reuben says, uh, send the boy with me. I'll take responsibility for the boy. If the boy dies, you can kill my two sons. <laughs> that's Reuben's, that's Reuben's solution here is like, look, if, if Benjamin gets killed, you can kill my sons. He, not a good solution, Reuben. Okay. So that's another reason. Let's not listen to Reuben. Reuben's not coming up with good solutions. So now back here in 43, Judah now provides a similar solution, but listen to how it's different. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me and let us rise and go that we may live and not die. Neither we, nor you, nor our little ones. I will be his pledge. From my hand, you may seek him. If I do not bring him to you, set him before you, I will bear the blame to you for all time. For had we not tarried by now, we could have come back twice. So Judah, a little different than what Reuben says. Reuben says, hey, if he dies, you can kill my sons. Judah says, I'll be responsible. So, you have Judah that plays the part in Joseph being gone. You have Judah learning what it means to take responsibility for your sin and to change your behavior. And now here on the other side, remember, this is the chiasm, where that Judah and Tamar story is kind of the chi of, of, of the character arc. Now you have him saying, I will take responsibility if yet another, something happens to yet another one of my brothers. I will be the one. I, he's not saying this out loud, but he's saying, I, I, I was responsible for that, and now I'll be responsible for this. So we move forward, and uh, they go through, they go to see Joseph, they approach him, they bring, ben they bring uh, Benjamin, um, he brings Simeon out to them, we're around verse 24 or so of this chapter. Uh, so let's just read from here. Um, and he brought Simeon out to them. And the men brought the men into Joseph's house, and he gave them water, and they bathed their feet, and he gave provender to their donkeys, and they prepared the tribute against Joseph's arrival at noon, for they had heard that there, uh, that there they would eat bread. And Joseph came into the house, and they brought him the tribute that was in their hand into the house, and they bowed down to him to the ground. And he asked how they were, and he said, Is all well with your aged father of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, All is well with your servant, our father. He is still alive. And they did obeisance and bowed down. And he raised his eyes, here's that phrase again, and he raised his eyes and saw Benjamin, his brother, his mother's son. Now remember how much time has passed since he saw Benjamin. Benjamin was a little boy. He would not recognize him, but because he's the only new person with this group, he knows who he is. Imagine you've not seen your young brother for many, many years, for over two decades, and now you look up and here is this grown man standing there in the place of your, of your little boy brother. He raised his eyes and saw Benjamin, his brother, his mother's son. And he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? 
And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. And Joseph hurried out for his feelings for his brother overwhelmed him. And he wanted to weep. And he went into the chamber and wept there. So much emotion in the story coming from the, the, the familial aspects. And he bathed his face and he came out and he held himself in check. And he said, serve bread. And they served him and them separately and the Egyptians that were eating with him separately, for the Egyptians would not eat bread with the Hebrews, as it was abhorrent to Egypt. And they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, the youngest according to his youth, and the men marveled to each other. So basically they were lined up in order in the order they were born. And the men all marveled at it, because who would possibly know that? Because they all just look like grown men. But if you're Joseph, of course you know that. And he had portions passed to them from before him, and Benjamin's portion was five times more the portion than all the rest. Because as a young boy, he was probably the only brother that was not around plotting to kill and throw Joseph into a pit. Um, uh, Benjamin's portion was five times more than the portion of all the rest, and they drank, and they got drunk with him. So you can look at different translations and decide whether or not they got drunk. Um, this academic scholar seems to think that they probably did. But certainly they were drinking and enjoyed each other's company. Let's go on. And he charged the one who was over his house, saying, fill the men's bags. So he fills their bags again. And they were going to leave. And then someone goes and chases them down. So what's happening here? Is Joseph playing around with them? What is he doing? Why is he doing this? Why does he call them spies? Why does he put the money in? Why does he do it again? Okay, this is a, 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 a ruse to get them to all come back. He wants to hold on to Benjamin for himself. But what is he going to do with all the other brothers? In Egypt, with his position of power and what they have supposedly done, what they're being accused of, the evidence is right there in the bags. He can throw them in jail. He can probably have them killed. I mean, if the Hebrews can't even sit and eat with the Egyptians, what, who's to say the Egyptians wouldn't just kill them all? What's Joseph feeling? You know, we, we kind of know how the story ends, so we read it playfully. But if you don't know how the story ends and you're thinking about how a person in a position of power would feel towards these people that, you know, were going to kill them themselves and then almost ruined his life if it were not for the grace of God. Kind of wonder, what is what is Joseph going to do with these guys? So now he wants to hold on to Benjamin while they go back and get their father. Uh, and notice what it says in verse 14 as they're coming back. And Judah with his brothers came into Joseph's house. So it's not just the brothers. It's not Reuben with his brothers. It's not Simeon or Levi. It's Judah. Why? Because Judah's the main character. The narrator is reminding us of that because of the conversation that's about to happen. And Joseph said to them, what is this deed you have done? Did you not know that a man like me would surely divine? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak and how shall we prove ourselves right? God has found out your servant's crime. Here we are, slaves to my Lord, both we and the one in whose hand the goblet was found. And he said, far be it for me to do this. The man in whose the goblet was found, he shall become my slave. And you go up in peace to your father. So it appears to be what Joseph is saying is you've committed a crime. The goblet was found in Joseph's ba in uh, Benjamin's bag. He's going to be my slave because he wants to keep his little brother for himself. The rest of you get out of here. Again, I, I don't know that he's playing. I think he's saying, fine, going back, but Benjamin stays with me. And Judah approached him and said, listen to this speech. Please, my Lord, let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing and let your wrath not flare against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh, 
My Lord had asked his servant, saying, Do you have a father or brother? And we said to my Lord, We have an aged father and a young child of his old age. And his brother being dead, he, there, he this is the first time somebody actually kind of calls Joseph dead when Judah knows he's not dead. Um, and his brother being dead, he alone is left of his mother and his father loves him. And you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father. Should you leave his father, he would die. And you said to your servants, if your youngest brother does not come down with you, you shall not see my face again. And it happened when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back, buy us some food. We said, we cannot go down. If your youngest brother is with us, we shall go down for we cannot see the face of the man. If our youngest brother is not with us. The repetition here, this is all about Judah letting the Egyptian know we have followed your orders strictly. And this is what happened. And your servant, our father said to us, you know, that two did my wife bear to me and one went out for me. And I thought, oh, he's been torn to shreds and I have not seen him since. Notice what Judah says. Judah says that Jacob thought he'd been torn to shreds, right? And you should take this one too for my presence and harm befall him. You would bring down my gray head and evil to Sheol. And so should I come to your servant, my father, and the lad be not with us for his life. His life is bound to the lads. When he saw the lad was not with us, he would die. And your servants would bring down the gray head of your servant, our father, in sorrow to Sheol. A lot of words there. I want to point something out though. When Judah says, if we are to go back without our brother, he doesn't say he will blame you, Egyptian. He says, it, it, it'll be our fault. For your servant became pledged for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him to you, I will bear the blame to my father for all time. And so let your servant pray, stay instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go to my father if the lad be not with us? Let me not see the evil that would find out my father. Judah is saying to Joseph, if we go back without the boy, it'll kill my father and it'll be my fault. Let me stay as your slave and let the boy go back so that nothing bad happens to my father because it would be my fault and I take responsibility. So in the Time when Joseph was given away as a slave, Judah's the one who comes up with the idea. And if they're all standing around the edge of the pit, it's quite likely Joseph heard it and knew that it was Judah. And now here is Judah standing before him saying, put, let, me, let me put myself in place of the one who is to suffer the punishment so that we can make this thing right. This is the first time you see Someone not just taking responsibility for their sin, not just owning up to it, not just changing their behavior, but now actually trying to reconcile something that they have done wrong. This is why Judah is the main character of Genesis. How does Joseph respond when he hears something that in the story of Genesis has never, ever happened in the world before? How does Joseph respond? When we turn the page to chapter 45. And Joseph could no longer hold himself in check before all who stood attendance upon him. And he cried, clear out everyone around me. And no man stood with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. And the Egyptians heard. And the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed before him. 
Do you see the response that Joseph had? Whatever he was planning to keep Benjamin and send them away, to throw them in jail, to kill them all, whatever his revenge he was plotting, whatever was going on, he became completely undone when Judah puts himself in the place of Benjamin. When he says, punish me, not the boy. I, t- I bear the punishment. It's my responsibility. Reconciliation happens and Joseph comes undone. Uh, let's, let's pause there for tonight and talk about some things. I want to go back to some of our slides here. We were talking about beginning, middle, and now a new beginning. In the chiastic structure, you have the beginning, something in the middle changes everything, and now you have a new beginning. And in Genesis, as we were approaching this new beginning, we've seen already we have creation is act one. We have the struggle of act two with Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then now uh, Jacob's sons, Joseph. What will this third act bring us? What is the new beginning? You have creation, struggle, and then what? What's the new beginning? Um, so I want to talk about two lies. Two lies that I think our current culture believes that are really impacting the way that we treat each other. You see it big time on social media, in the news, politics, um, entertainment, and it's filtering down into all of our personal conversations because we consume so much of those things. The first lie that our culture believes is this, that people are basically good. It sounds like something that we really want to believe in, doesn't it? But we've seen, as we've studied Genesis, very early on, God says through the narrator, every human is evil from their youth. So we know that, no, this really isn't true. We want to believe people are basically good, but scripture tells us no, people are not good. There's not a single good person. All humans are evil from their youth. But the world believes people are basically good. And you'll hear people say that a lot. The next lie is sort of a corollary to the first. Bad people cannot be saved. Okay? Sounds a little bit um, like there's a conflict here, right? If everybody's basically good, how are there even bad people? Well, we do know that there are bad people, certainly, right? Um, So when somebody like, uh, let's just take someone from the news, not casting judgment on someone, although... Judgment has already been cast from a judicial sense with Harvey Weinstein. Let's just take that as an example, okay? Here's someone who purportedly did some evil things in a judicial court of law. It was found that he did do those things. He's guilty of those things, and he must suffer punishment for it, okay? So here is someone that we would say, that's a bad person, okay? People are basically good, but now what do we do with this guy? Because we have this, this bad person. What do we do with the bad person? Well, we have to just completely remove them from society because they're not they're not a real person because people are basically good. So it's a little oxymoronic these these um, uh, these these two thoughts. They they seem like they go together, but but then they also they they really conflict. So we have these two lies: people are basically good, and bad people cannot be saved. We think people are basically good. We aren't. And we think that if someone sins, that they can't be saved. We can. We know that also from Scripture. 
Uh, these pair of lies, they arrive together. Right? If people are basically good, then it kind of follows that someone who does something bad is an anomaly and should be discarded as defective. And like all enduring lies, these pair of lies, they're based on quite observable truths. Because we've also learned from Genesis that people are made in the image of God, and so therefore they are capable of great good. Many people do good things all the time. Many people spend most of their lives doing good things. Many people do really great things. Many do self, self-sacrificial things. We're hearing, especially in the news right now, all kinds of stories of many people doing good things. So it's not that people can't be good, but if we're talking about their basic nature, are they totally good? They are evil from their youth, Scripture tells us. Scripture also tells us they're made in the image of God, so they're capable of great good. So we see that this enduring lie comes from a truth. Left to themselves, people rarely change from doing the bad things that they do. And the second lie, also based on a kernel of truth, I mean, evil is quite unsalvageable by the one who has perpetrated it. Punishment, pardon, or penance may help us get on with our lives, but they don't erase the sin. Punishment, pardon, penance. Punishment is when you say, okay, you did X, so now we're going to do Y to you. That's punishment. Pardon is when you say, okay, you did X, but we're just going to act like you didn't do X. That's pardon. Penance says, okay, you did X, but if you do enough Y, which is good, then that'll make up for the X that you did. These are three ways that we have of dealing with the sin in the world with when people do bad things. Punishment, pardon, and penance. These are the three ways that we have of dealing with getting, getting around with these two lies. But the problem is, uh, they may help us get on with our lives. These, these three responses, punishment, pardon, penance, they may help us get on with our lives, but they don't erase the sin. So the only thing that could erase the sin is to remove the sin from existence. Have it never have happened. Well, the only way you could do that is if the person had never been born. I say this about all of us, right? The sin that we've caused in our lives, I mean, the only way you could get rid of it is if we had never existed in the first place, right? So we can't change the past. So if someone sins, then how are we going to stop them from sinning in the future? Well, logic follows. It's to remove them from existence. The only way to change the future, to keep them from sinning anymore, is to destroy them so they can never offend again. I think this is why scripture says the wages of sin is death. Death, that's all you get with sin. That's all, it, when, you, when, when there is sin, the only thing anybody deserves is death. That's the only way to take care of it. It doesn't even fix the sin, but it just at least it stops it from happening anymore. So punishment, pardon, and penance helps us kind of deal with it, but it doesn't erase the sin. I don't want to live forever in a place where people who are basically good, still do selfish and bad things, and we get rid of them one by one. I don't want to live in that place. And never mind wanting to live there. I could not live there in this kind of paradigm because I would be quickly exterminated, right? We all would. So what are we to do? Back in the first or second lesson, I think it was the very first one, I quoted from a book that I used that helped with this study. The book is The Beginning of Wisdom, Reading Genesis by Leon Cass. And the quote from early on in his book is this, 
is it possible to find, institute, and preserve a way of life responsive to both the promise and the peril of the human creature that accords with man's true standing in the world and that serves to perfect his godlike possibilities? The question is, if we're evil from our youth, but we want to get sin out of our lives, is there some way we can find to do it? Is there anything, is there anything in the universe that will help us do that? If sin leads to death, how can we reverse this and escape death? Is it possible? Because punishment in the hands of broken people, just, it turns into revenge. And um, pardon in the hands of broken people is neglect. Penance in the hands of broken people is greed. And so how are you saved? Is it by punishing yourself? No, because the punishment is death. So there's no recovery from death. Is it by pardon? No, because the pardon doesn't fix anything. It just ignores the wrong or, or attempts to ignore it. Is it by penance, by your works? Paul in the New Testament would say, absolutely not. He'd say, God forbid. So God gives the human race a great grace. And we see it happen right here in chapter 44 of Genesis in Judah's speech. The first person, Judah, the father of David, the father of Jesus, Judah offers, asks for reconciliation, forgiveness, punishment, pardon, penance. They can help us get by. They work legally. But the only thing that is going to really erase the sin is forgiveness. Forgiveness outvalues sin because forgiveness is in Christ. See, when I do punishment or pardon or penance, that's coming from me. But forgiveness is only possible because of Christ. Forgiveness rebuilds and so abolishes punishment. Punishment is a tearing down. Forgiveness rebuilds. Forgiveness acknowledges wrongs and so ousts pardon. Forgiveness acknowledges the wrong. Forgiveness seeks nothing in return and so transcends penance. It's not an exchange. It's just a grace. It's an unmerited favor. It's a gift. Forgiveness is God's great coup against the sin at war among us. In sin, we are deemed guilty. We're given a value, and that value is guilty. In sin, we are deemed guilty. But in forgiveness, we are redeemed. We're given a new value. And so that's why when we look at the three acts creation, struggle. What is the third act? What is the new beginning? What is the new creation? It is redemption. That is the story of Genesis. And you can't read it. You can't understand the story, reading a chapter at a time, a few verses at a time, one story at a time. You must read it as a single story in context to understand the entire story structure, creation, struggle, redemption. This idea of redemption sets up all the books that are to follow, which are the books of the law and the rest of the Torah that the Jews would, would live on and study for the rest of their lives. So redemption, that's what we find here in Genesis chapter four, forgiveness and reconciliation. I want to leave you with one last slide and we'll be done for the night. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and it is Paul talking about this very idea. 
From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new beginning. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Behold, he says, as in, lift up your eyes. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Christ reconciled us, and now we have a ministry to go out and seek reconciliation ourselves. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We sing a song about that last verse, but sometimes it's very difficult. But when you see it in the story of Judah, you can understand what it means. Christ steps in and says, let me be sin. Don't let sin kill these people. Let me do it so that we can be a family once again. And because Christ became sin for us, we now can become the righteousness of God. We can take on Christ's job in the world and go out and preach about this reconciliation that God is inviting everyone into. That's why we must make disciples. That's why we must tell people the good news that Jesus is coming to save them, forgive them, forgive them of the worst things they've ever done in their life, and is going to reconcile them to their God. All of this is about restoring the very goodness of Genesis 1. That first sentence of Genesis, that the light is taken from the darkness, and the darkness is sent scattering, and the light is just made more and more abundant, and the light comes from the Word of God. All of that you see taking place all through the book of Genesis, in this redemption, all the way through the New Testament, in the person and story of Jesus and you find it in your own salvation. And now your job is to take it and share it with somebody else. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.